What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. I promised you last episode we wouldn't be doing uh, Florida Adventures again. We've done three in a row. And we're going to we're gonna shift to a different environment, and that is Alaska. The next couple episodes are going to feature Alaska. Giving you a little bit of a spoiler with Monday's brand new episode. But this one is with the legendary, absolutely legendary, Alaskan-based adventurer, Roman Dial. Uh, this one is done by... This episode is hosted by Kurt. It's from 2015, so throwing it throwing it back almost 10 years now. And it was uh, what we're going to be talking about is Alaska pack rafting mostly, and just exploring that great frontier that is that is Alaska. It'll feature things about pack rafting, ice skating, like through ice skating, backpacking self-supported, resupplied trips. Um, and something you might not know about Roman, he, he's a professor at Alaska Pacific University. Um, but also, th- this interview was not long after his son disappeared in the jungles of uh, Central America. And, you know, we, we didn't really get into that here. I, I don't know how much of the story w- was really out there at the time. Uh, but since, uh, Roman has written a book called The Adventurer's Son, where he and his wife spent years, as you know, any parent would, searching for their son who was lost in the, the Central American jungles. And, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's out there and pretty obvious when you start Googling that, you know, they found his son. They found the remains. And, and so he took time to grieve, of course, and wrote a book about it to tell the story and you know, we didn't really get into that here, but if you search his name, uh, that is a well-known story. It was covered extensively back in 2020 when he released the book and the story, his side of things. And I encourage you to read it. I, I have not read the book, but it, it's, from everything I can tell, a very powerful story and a, kind of an update on this. So, yeah, just wanted to acknowledge that because we really didn't talk about it much in this episode. And a lot has happened since then. I would love to get Roman back on. I've heard so many listeners over the years have found the podcast because they have been listening to interviews that Roman has done. A uh, hugely influential person, great writer, great adventurer, and uh, yeah, maybe one day we'll get him back on. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today, I have Roman Dial with us. Roman is here to talk to us about Alaska Adventure, but he has a lot of experience with amazing adventures all over the planet. He uh, was a National Geographic explorer. 
He's done a lot of canopy field work in Australia, Borneo, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., and he loves pack rafting. Matter of fact, he knows Steve Fassbinder, who was on episode 57 that told us all about pack rafting and the fun there. Roman is a professor at Alaska Pacific University. He has a Ph.D. in biology and a master's in math, and so he does a lot of field work as well. Roman, we're excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Curtis. It's glad to be here. So, Roman, I, I hit a few bullet points, but will you fill the listeners in on your passion for Alaska adventure? Sure. You know, I've, um, I've lived in Alaska since I was 16, and so I guess that's kind of going on 40 years now. And I, I really think it's the, the best place in the world for wilderness adventure. And I've, I've traveled around the world looking for places that would be better but Alaska is the best because it's politically stable. Um, they speak English. It's truly wild. It has great animal trails, you know, like wild animal trails and not that many human trails. It's got beautiful mountains and it has wonderful rivers and, uh, and coasts. And what I really enjoy is linking all those together with big landscape crossings. Roman, I made it up to Alaska in 1997. It's been a while ago. And I really enjoyed the trip. But of course, Alaska is so huge. We only sampled a tiny fraction of it. I know that you've spent a lot more time there. How would you describe generally how Alaska is different from other places? Well, I think um, the way I would describe Alaska's difference from, say, most of what we call the lower 48, which is the other United States outside of Hawaii and Alaska, is that in Alaska, um, where, where people are, are in little islands embedded in wilderness and uh, embedded in nature. And so when you fly across Alaska and you look out the airplane, you don't really see roads, you don't see farms, you don't see cities and suburbs and sprawling human-dominated landscapes. You see wild landscapes. Whereas when you fly across the U.S., you look out your window and you just see the human-dominated landscape with, with little pockets of wildness. And it's kind of um, disconcerting to look out the window and see that. In fact, I don't even sit on uh, w- at window seats on airplanes outside of Alaska anymore because I don't want to look at that. Right. So Alaska is so full of open spaces. Alaska always seems wild to me in other ways, too, because the winters can be quite extreme. You have Kodiaks, you have polar bears, and another variety of other animals that would, you know, potentially... Oh, I, I guess I should say, if bothered in the wrong way, be dangerous. Yep. Well, that's part of the um, attraction is is it does make you feel alive to be in the wilderness. And it's not like walking on the Appalachian Trail where, you know, all you have to worry about is blisters on your feet. It's it's really is, it gets deep to the, to, to the primalness of being humans to have to worry about other creatures out there. And so, yeah, moose and bears, uh, you know, I don't want to say that I that I look for trouble with bears, but I do like the idea that bears are out there. I like to follow their trails, and I like to have to pay attention to something other than just people. Yeah, well, it's amazing. Alaska is one of the few places left in the U.S. where you can have such a huge variety of of amazing animals. And, you know, when we were in Alaska, we also took a ferry trip across the Prince William Sound and saw whales and calving glaciers and all that kind of stuff, too, which that's the only place you can see that in the U.S., it really is, and it's just. I think everybody needs to come up here and and see that and um, and experience it. And and I was 
I don't know, unfortunate maybe to see it when I was young. And I saw it when I was young and I got spoiled to the point where everything else looked pretty dull and boring compared to Alaska. I came up to Alaska when I was nine years old to spend the summer with some uncles I had who lived in the Alaska range. And I got bit by the Alaska bug. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I moved up here and have been here essentially ever since. And it's just because it's so different, so amazing. I just I can't live anywhere else. So I know a lot of our listeners wonder how extreme the weather really is. Can you describe the the climate of Alaska for us? Well, sure. I, I, it's changing. That's one way I would describe it. But it's, it is colder than than it is in the lower 48, of course. And, and in Fairbanks, it's quite cold. I mean, when I lived in Fairbanks in the eight, 70s and 80s, it was really cold. I mean, it would, I remember it got to 40 below for three weeks. So it wow. stayed 40 below for three weeks. And, and, you know, I didn't have a car and I lived in a little cabin that burned wood and I had no electricity. And so it was sort of a challenge to survive that. Um, and then, I live in Anchorage, and I've lived in Anchorage for 25 years now, I guess, and it's a lot warmer. In fact, right now, I think it's about 45 or 50 degrees. We're having a Chinook warm wind that's melting the snow, and we have for the last you know, 10 or 15 years just been getting these warmer and warmer winters and drier and sunnier summers, and it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, climate change is very, very real, and um, as a as a biologist and environmental scientist, I, I study it and I, I model it mathematically here in Alaska. But as an outdoorsman, I, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I welcome it because uh, we have just really nice summers and, and these amazing winters. We can go out and, and go ice skating like I did a 100-mile ice skating trip last November up in the Arctic you know, where we backpacked and we went 100 miles. We ice skated 100 miles with these special Nordic skates, which I use cross-country ski shoes on. And um, and we did that in two days. It was a weekend trip. Wow. Of the Arctic. So ice skating, were you on a river or, or how did you do that? Well, 100 miles is a long way. So we skated on rivers and lakes and creeks and um, and different bogs. I mean, in some at one point we walked through the snow and ice skated through marshes and walked through the snow and then got back on a delta of a river and and then skated down that delta to a gigantic lake and skated across the lake and and it was uh just a bunch of you know freshwater landscapes that we linked up together see now there's an adventure that we've never talked about before on the adventure sports podcast i've never heard of anyone ice skating for 100 miles that's awesome it was especially awesome for me to go that fast in my 50s. You know, when I was in my 20s, um, skate skiing had just started. And one of, the, one of the pioneers of skate skiing was a U.S. ski team member named Aldun Endestat. And he lived in Fairbanks, Alaska. And he wrote the first book on, on skate skiing. And this was in the, the mid-80s. And he and I skate skied across the Alaska range for about 150 miles up and down three different glaciers, and we carried all of our own stuff. And it was, uh, we did it in like a long weekend. It was like 70, 76 hours. And so um, this ice skating trip that I did, it was even faster than that. I mean, it was 100 miles in 36 hours instead of 150 miles in 72 hours. So it was really neat to be twice the age of my younger self 
and still move across um, Alaskan wilderness even faster under my own power. <laughs> Very cool. What other types of Alaskan adventures do you do up there? Well, um, you mentioned Steve Fastbinder, whom I know is Doom. And I first met Doom when he came up to Alaska um, with a pack raft and a fat bike. And I had just bought a fat bike. And I'd had, I'd had pack rafts for, you know, I'd been pack rafting since 1983. So I've been pack rafting for quite a long time. But he had just gotten one. And I'd also been combining bicycles and pack rafts since the late 80s. But I'd never had a fat bike until just a few years ago, like 2011. And he and a guy named Mike Kuriak, who'd be great for your show also, um, and uh, a guy named Eric um, Parsons and Dylan Kench, the five of us, took our fat bikes and rode along the coast of Alaska, down near where um, southeast Alaska, down near Glacier Bay. We actually ended at Glacier Bay. We started at Yakutat, and we rode our fat bikes down this beach for 200 miles. And we went from Yakutat to Glacier Bay, and it took us about, I don't know, a week or 10 days. I forget exactly, but it was a fantastic trip, you know, with these fat bikes with their big tires, and we were able to ride across soft sand, and then we'd come to a big bay, like Latuya Bay, and we'd blow up our pack rafts and put our fat bikes on the pack rafts and then paddle across. And so that was Doom's, that might have been Doom's first pack raft and uh, mountain bike or you know, fat bike trip. I know it was Mike Kuriak's first one because he had just got a pack raft. And so that was sort of the beginning of it. Um, and, and so I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, so yeah, in my twenties, I did a lot of long distance cross country ski trips, but we used real lightweight cross country skis. We didn't use metal edge skis. We used like Nordic racing skis and we skied across the Brooks Range, and we skied across the White Mountains, and we skied across the Alaska Range and the Chugach Range. This was in the 80s. And then I got into uh, riding mountain bikes um, with pack rafts, and we rode mountain bikes across the Brooks Range in 1990 and across the Alaska Range in 1989. And, and, and I ended up doing a big trip for National Geographic that came out in the National Geographic magazine, I think in like June, I think May 1997 that came out. We did an 800-mile mountain bike and pack raft traverse of the Alaska Range from Canada to Lake Clark. Um, and then I was also into adventure racing, although we called it wilderness racing here in Alaska. And I started doing that in the early 80s. And, um, and in those races, we would start in a little town. And then we'd finish in another little town, maybe 150 to 250 miles away. And the rules were really simple. The rules were... Start in one little town with everything you needed, included, including your food, to get to the other little town. And you couldn't use any roads or motorized vehicles or get any help along the way. So, you know, you'd race across the wilderness and you'd have to have a pack raft. And sometimes you took pack rafts and skis. And I had a partner once and he and I talked about, um, he was into kiting and he and I talked about, he was a climbing partner, an ice climbing partner, and a ski partner. And we talked about, going up over the wrangles and flying a parapet off the wrangles down into this little town of McCarthy for the Nebesna McCarthy race. But he, um, he had some problems and I didn't think he was going to do it. And so I, you know, I, I kind of, we fell out of touch and then he called me the week before the race and I wasn't in town and I was, 
planning just to run the race on my own. And so he ended up um, hiking up this glacier to 11,000 feet during the race and then jumping off the 6,000-foot icefall with his parapet, which is like a, you know, a, a, like a parachute, the 6,000-foot icefall. And he, he flew down, and the weather was bad. And he had to land and spend the night about a third of the way down. And then the next day, he flew almost all the way down, but the weather got bad. He had to spend a second night. <laughs> and then he flew down all the way to the bottom. And, um, and it's funny, like we were having a banquet. We'd all finished, and we were having a banquet when he finally came in. But when you go to McCarthy today, nobody remembers who won that race. They all think that Chuck won the race. <laughs> it was, it's a very original way to do an adventure race, huh? Yeah, it really was. And I guess, you know, if you're asking, you know, what kinds of adventures do I do in Alaska? And I guess that my favorite kinds are the ones that, that seem original. And Alaska's it's a big place and it's empty and, and there's still a lot of room to envision and dream up new ways to cross these wild landscapes. Oh, yeah. Alaska is vast. And I think most people, well, I'll just say myself, I didn't realize how vast Alaska was until I spent 10 days there and realized that I, I kind of looked at the toenail of the giant, you know. Well, you know, Curtis, I've been here for, I think, 40 years now or something like that. And I still haven't, I'm still not done. You know, I, I traversed the Brooks Range from from Canada all the way to Kotzebue, which is you know on the on the far west coast, that was a thousand miles, and I I I mountain biked across the Alaska Range, and I and I've connected the two practically. I think I added up all my miles, and it's like fourteen thousand five hundred miles that I've you know walked, skied, bicycled, or ice skated, or pack rafted just in the wilderness of Alaska, not including the roads. And I and I don't I'm not done. I mean, there's still places that I haven't been that I want to go to. And I'm not the only one. There's a whole bunch of us who are like that. One of my real inspirations is this guy named Dick Griffith. And he's actually the one who showed me pack rafting when I was a 21-year-old kid in the first first wilderness race in Alaska, the Hope to Homer race. He showed up. He was 55. I'm 55 now. I can't believe that he showed up at 55 and showed all of us young guys, hey, you should have a pack raft to float these rivers because we were swimming the rivers to cross them and he was crossing them with a pack raft and then floating them when they were going his direction nice. and nice. Um, and so that was you know a long time ago 30 years ago um and so and after he showed us that he continued to crisscross alaska on skis and then there's another couple and they're doing these long wilderness trips here with their kids who are like under six years old i think they're like four and two or something and they're doing month-long 400-mile trips and things like that or summer-long trips with their kids and so it kind of it's an addiction uh, where you do these long trips and and you finish one and you think it's going to be satisfying but all it really does is encourage you to do another longer trip so it's addictive you know we always ask people why would you encourage people to try the sport and I think you just answered that question it's it's just such an amazing life experience that it's hard to not do it once you've tasted it huh yeah and also um, I don't like to do solo trips really I don't I don't do that many I I, I can't you know I, I mean I do do them but I don't I don't choose to do them um, they're not my first choice and so I build a lot of relationships and friendships doing that I mean my wife and I did some trips when we were young and we still talk about them. They were long wilderness trips and they were really bonding. And 
and as a family we've done them you know i i you know spent a lot of time with our kids when they were younger doing long trips ski trips and walking trips and pack rafting trips and and most of the friends that i have today my close friends are are people that i did trips with so it's um yeah it's an addiction but it's also sort of a social activity i love it i think that that's the that's the antidote to the us crazy American dream that we all seem to get wrapped up in is taking time out to do something for the longer term in nature and doing it with friends and getting that sense of community. And wow, that sounds really refreshing. Yeah, it is. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. And also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell anything online at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollars in revenue stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're a podcaster trying to sell merch or selling autographed sports memorabilia, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one commerce platform to their personal POS system, Shopify has got you covered. Now, I do use Shopify with my day job. That's our website, and that's our platform. It's so handy. It makes it easy for us on the back end. It makes it easy for you as a shopper and as a customer to sell more. And they can help you all the way from those early, early days until you're a real business, making real money. And that's what I love about them. No matter how big you want to grow, they can grow with you and help you take control your business to get it to that next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ASP, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash ASP to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ASP. Rodeo season is going to be kicking off soon, and, you know, I, I like the rodeo. I like going to the rodeo. I like going to cattle auctions and all sorts of those activities, and I want to look the part while I'm there. I love Tecovis as my go-to boots company, and if you've ever been in one of their stores, it's an amazing experience. Their motto is don't go gently. They are my favorite cowboy boot, and they bring a fresh perspective to heritage boot making, and they carry forward all those time-honored 
traditions and quality you will find in a great pair of cowboy boots. But they're innovative on comfort, style, and service. They have western boots for men and women and are handmade from the most premium leather and follow over 200 time-honored individual steps in their boot-making process. Pretty cool. They're Austin-designed, Texas-tested, and handmade. And if you want to go to one of their stores, it is an amazing experience. They take customer service to a whole new level. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. And as a special opportunity just for you listeners, Tecovis is going to throw in their best-selling trucker hats or a ball cap for free into any purchase over $100 at tecovis.com. Just use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. Again, that's Tecovis, T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to add a free hat to your order over $100. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast has helped me plan for my tax bill so I don't dread April every year, balancing my budget for this show, and helping me financially plan for my next adventure. You can listen to NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You've done so many different trips, but I would love to hear a story about one and, you know, a play-by-play take us there, just an experience that you thought was just completely out of this world. Okay, yeah, it's kind of tough. I think I could probably, the one I would would choose would be um, about 10 years ago, I did sort of a lifelong ambition, maybe not lifelong, but it was at least 20 years old. And when I was starting those wilderness races, I uh, I thought, wow, I wonder how far I could actually go if I just carried all my own stuff. Like I, I had to carry all my food and camping gear. How far could I actually, how far could I actually travel? And I didn't want to forage, like I didn't want to pick berries or catch fish or shoot animals. And I didn't I didn't want to use a boat or a bicycle or skis or drag a sled. I just wanted to be able to, I just wanted to walk. And I didn't want to walk on trails or roads. I wanted to walk across wilderness. And, uh, and I, I figured that if I was going to see how far I could walk through wilderness, then I should pick the wildest place in the United States, the wildest place, Alaska, to do that walk. And so using GIS, you know, the computerized mapping uh, approach, I and uh, a former graduate student and I, we found the most remote place in Alaska, and it's in the northwestern part of Alaska. And and by remote, I mean the place farthest from a road and farthest from a village. And so um, I found that spot, and it was 119 miles in every direction. The nearest place in any direction was 119 miles away. I mean, some places were more than 118 miles away, but but that was it. And so just sort of to let you and your listeners kind of know how far away that is, in the United States, in the lower 48, the most remote place generally considered to be the most remote place is in Yellowstone. Now, actually, it's just right outside of Yellowstone National Park. 
And, um, and that's only 20 miles. The farthest away you can get from a road or a village in the lower 48 is 20 miles. And wow. so what we're talking about is something that's six, six times as far. And so what I wanted to do was walk to that most remote place. And I wanted to walk there by fair means. And I, by that, I mean I wanted to carry all of my food and all of my equipment and not carry a raft or a pack raft not have any skis or drag a sled, carry everything and walk to that most remote place and then walk out and, and find out how far could I walk carrying my own, my own stuff. And I, when I was a math major, when I was a math, I was working on my master's degree at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks and I was doing those wilderness races in my 20s, I came up with a mathematical model that predicted how far I would be able to travel carrying all my own food and knowing how much gear I would have. But it took 20 years before I found anybody else who was interested in that. Back then, nobody was interested in it. In fact, the adventure racing craze, which is passe now, hadn't started. Pack rafting was considered sort of not even something less than a fringe sport. Um, taking bicycles uh, like fat bikes off trail and into wilderness, nobody even had thought about that. So this was a long time ago, and it took 20 years or so for me to find people who thought, hey, hey, you know, like the lightweight, uh, the third or fourth version of the lightweight backpacking revolution finally came around, and I found some people who were interested in going to the most remote place by carrying all your stuff. And, and so I was able to realize this dream that I'd had. I, I got this former graduate student of mine named Jason Gack, and then I met a guy on the internet. And um, his name is Ryan Jordan, and he had this backpackinglight.com site, which was pretty interesting. And there was a whole community of people who were into lightweight hiking, kind of um, this a craze that had been established by Ray Jardine, I think, in the 90s. And we'd already been doing lightweight, um, you know, hiking and wilderness travel in Alaska since the 80s. But we're just not as famous up here as the lower 48 people, because we just do it for ourselves. We don't do it to try to get famous or make money. And um, we do it because we love it and we have to travel light, I mean. And so I'd written this mathematical model um, that kind of said, you know, how far you could go per day as a function of how much gear you tra carried. And, um, and I applied the model and it looked like for me, you know, I don't know about you, Curtis, or anybody else, but for me, Knowing myself, I should be able to go about 650 miles in one go carrying all my food. And so I got Jason and this guy, Ryan Jordan, who, whom I'd met on the Internet. And I kind of invited Ryan tongue-in-cheek because I didn't think he'd really come. But I said, hey, I've got this plan to cross Alaska's Arctic and go to the most remote place that we've pinpointed there, the most remote place in the United States. Would you like to go? And and he said, yeah. And then I was like, I didn't know the guy. You know, I'd never met him. <laughs> and, uh, and, but what was really cool about him is that he was a gear maven. You know, he, he knew all the latest, lightest gear. In fact, he was designing and manufacturing lightweight gear. And he, he knew all the cottage um, industry uh, folks who were making, you know, new novel equipment out of um, what was then very um, original fabrics like Cuban fiber. You know, this is 10 years ago. 
and uh, and so he he helped put together a super lightweight kit, and um, and he wanted to come and he came along and his his approach was to be like a solo hiker. And see, I don't really do much solo hiking. Like most of the trips that I do, I like to do with other people so we can travel even lighter by sharing a shelter. By um, like when I travel with my wife, we can share one container. We might just eat out of a a cook pot. Sometimes Peggy and I, we only take one spoon and we eat out of the cook pot and share the spoon. And when we were younger, we might just take one toothbrush and we <laughs> we did trips where we only took one sleeping bag. We would drape over ourselves and one pack raft. And so by sharing, you could we could go really light. There's really like here's how you can go light. You can um, you can do without. And I think that's the best way to go light is to know what it is that you need. We we tend to pack our insecurities. What you put in your pack is the stuff that you feel like you can't do without. And the reason you feel like you can't do without is you're afraid to be without that stuff. So you really, when you're pack, you look inside your pack, what's in there are your insecurities. And my biggest insecurity is food because I've run out of food in my youth on a few climbing trips. I did go through a climbing stage too. And, um, and I just hate to run out of food. So I tend to go a little heavy on food, but I know that I can get away with, um, not bringing a lot of stuff. So number one, if you want to go light, you just leave stuff out. And then number two, what you want to do to go light is, uh, have the stuff that you do bring do double duty. So for example, if you bring a foam pad to sleep on, you should be able to pull that right off the top of your pack and sit on it like a chair during the day and then maybe stick it inside your pack to be a frame or if you're pack rafting use it as a seat for your pack raft if you are pack rafting and you've got a paddle we'll use the paddle as the center pole of your megamid style shelter and this you know megamid style shelter is a floorless tent so i mean i could go on for a little while about gear and its multiple uses but that's another way to save weight and then the third way to save weight really is to share what you have with the people who come with you so you can you can just use that synergy to go lighter so jason and i we shared a tent we even brought just a quilt that we slept under we shared one quilt so we could not bring two sleeping bags but just one quilt and we had one big cook pot that we cooked out of and um between the two of us we each carried what the ultralight community likes to call the base weight we each carried about you know 10 to 12 pounds of gear. And then I don't remember what Jason started with, but I started with 42 pounds of food. And so basically, um, my gear weight was under 60 pounds for a, uh, a three, what we planned is a three week trip to, to walk 625 miles is about how far it looked. Wow. That's amazing. Three weeks, 625 miles. So 30 miles a day. Well, in the beginning, with those heavy packs, we only made 10 to 15 miles a day. And remember, we're walking up here in Alaska. Uh, there are no trails that are human. The only trails that we walked on were animal trails, like bear trails and caribou trails and moose trails and gravel bars. And we had to look where to go. We couldn't just blindly follow along. We had to read the landscape and choose our own route. And so... In the beginning, with the heavy packs and the river crossings, we did a lot of river crossings. We went pretty slow. But by the end, well, a week into the trip, 
Ryan um, twisted his ankle, oh, and no. he, and we had to we had we had a satellite phone. He had a satellite phone, and he was he was um, calling in dispatches with his satellite phone for a blog, and um, and he twisted his ankle, so we had to use a satellite phone and call a bush plane in to fly him out. And he was camping on his own. He wasn't sharing anything with with um, Jason or me. Jason and I were just traveling as a team, but 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 Ryan was along with us doing his own thing. I mean, we we camped together. We wouldn't share food or shelter. So he flew out after about a week, and then Jason and I continued. And um, and I took the saddle. We took the satellite phone from J- from Ryan to use as uh, emergency. But we also I I started calling in blog reports. It was the first blogging I'd ever done. And then um, Jason had a girlfriend, and I'd call my wife every day or two and talk to her on the sat phone. But Jason, he missed his girlfriend just too much and he wouldn't call her. He was afraid that it would, you know, make him miss her even more. <laughs> getting all freaked out because she didn't, she thought, what, Jason doesn't like me anymore? He's not talking to me? And I said, Jason, you got to call Joey and talk to her. She misses you and she doesn't know why you're not talking to her. This is what my wife Peggy told me. And so when we got to the only village that we walked past, and that was Anaktuvik Pass. And we'd put that on our route because we didn't know if we'd actually make it the whole, you know, 625 miles. And Anaktuvik Pass was at about like 575 miles or something like that. And uh, and when we got there, Jason's like, you know what? I'm flying out. I got to go see Joey and I got some things to take care of. So he flew out from Anaktuvik Pass, this this mountain Eskimo village. And then I walked from there to the Alaska Pipeline, the Dalton Highway. And um, so just to sort of let you know, you were asking how far we went each day. The last 72 miles, you know, I walked in a day and a half. Wow. That's a lot of distance. Yeah. I think it's it's amazing to even know that humans can pull something like that off. But I, we've talked to a lot of through hikers and uh, the body builds up the strength to do it over time. Yep, and- it does. Yeah. And, and you get... Like by that time, remember at the beginning, my pack was close to 60 pounds. But when I finished, you know, all I had left was that, you know, 12 or 14 pounds of actually it was like 12 pounds of gear on my back because I ate pretty much all my food. I did have a pound and a half of food left. But um, but yeah, that was, uh, you know, that was a pretty extreme trip. And we swam rivers, like really big rivers we, that you had to swim, you know, and you couldn't wade them. You had to swim them with your backpack on. And, uh, you know, we had bear encounters. We only had bear spray and we had bears circle us and um, charge at us and, oh. you know, gnash their teeth. And we didn't have any way to defend ourselves except bear spray. We only had one can of bear spray and we had multiple bear encounters where in any, like early on, we could have used up our, we had one bear can bear spray we could have used that and then we wouldn't have in it have it and we (laughs) so when do you spray wait 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 exactly that's exactly (laughs) what we did and and i mean we got to the point where jason and i we would see bears far off and then we would hide and we'd get down on our hands and knees or crawl behind terrain obstacles to hide ourselves from the bears because whenever a bear would see us it would just come running over across the tundra charging right for us and it was just really disconcerting and nerve-wracking and it would force us to walk out of our way so it was a real challenging trip i mean um start with a heavy pack end with nothing um 
find your way across trackless wilderness um, in, a, in the most remote place in all of the United States, swimming big Arctic glacial rivers, trying to hurry and get out before the notorious mosquitoes emerged. You know, Alaska gets really bad mosquitoes. Like one time in the Arctic, I uh, had a bad mosquito problem and I, I, I had long pants on. They were so bad, I was completely clothed covered in clothing and I I swatted on my lower leg down by my shin just one hand Curtis one hand one swipe no smearing and I counted 94 mosquitoes on oh, my hand that's amazing you know I saw a, a, a cartoon once about the Alaska mosquitoes and two mosquitoes were in a tent looking at a guy sleeping and they said should we uh, eat him in here or carry him outside the tent <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. So how do you survive that kind of a mosquito attack? I mean, it could kill a person. Yeah, well, I just, I I don't go where the mosquitoes are. Like, that was the only trip purposefully went during the height of mosquito season because I wanted to see these huge caribou aggregations of the porcupine caribou herd. When the mosquitoes get really bad, the um, caribou they line up like wind vanes near the coast where the cold air comes off of the Arctic Ocean and blows the mosquitoes away. And I wanted to go see, you know, these 100,000 caribou all lined up there. And so that's the reason I went there. And, and what you need is a head net and some bug dope and a lot of patience and the ability to build fires, um, you know, in the evening to kind of get close and chase the mosquitoes away. Wow. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. With any adventure, hydration is very important. I've been on so many trips where I've been dehydrated or couldn't stay hydrated enough, and Element helps anyone, including especially adventurers, stay hydrated. Without the sugar and other dodgy ingredients found in in popular electrolyte and sports drinks, you don't want to have cramps and headaches and fatigue and brain fog or weakness on trips, whether that's training or out on the adventure itself. And having the ability to have something like Element there is so important. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix free of all the sugar and artificial coloring. Element was developed by former research biochemist Rob Wolf, two times New York Times bestselling author, and one of the Navy SEAL Resiliency Committee members for over a decade. From Olympic athletes to special forces to health experts to business leaders to everyday health, Element is their go-to choice for hydration. Our listeners can receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you go to drinkelement.com slash adventure sports. That's drinklmnt.com slash adventure sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, give it away to a friend and they'll give you your money back. No questions asked. I've been using it on rides and paddles lately and I'm really enjoying it. Element, stay salty. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, what advice would you have for people that might be interested in some of these sorts of adventures? I mean, these are epic adventures that you're talking about here. How would someone even get started putting together a trip like that? It, it kind of depends on the person. There are, there are some people who will probably never be able to do an epic adventure anywhere. And, and they, you know, they, that's, that's fine, you know, and they, um, you know, they can walk on trails and visit Yellowstone 
um, and the Appalachian Trail. And uh, and then there are other people who uh, – there's this guy. I, I can't remember his name right now, but he's from Australia, and he wanted to cross the Brooks Range. And Australia and Alaska are very different. And this guy was a young man, and he came up to Alaska, and he was going to do a traverse of the Brooks Range from – uh, east to west and he came up and the first time he tried it he couldn't i don't think he he flew in and he was so afraid of the wildness that he called for the pilot and the pilot came and picked him up and he flew back out wow. so he he planned and he came back two years later and he tried it again and he i think he may have come with a partner and he walked for a ways and he he hurt himself and realized you know i'm not ready for this and he flew out and then he came back on his own and he ended up traversing the whole Brooks Range, which which Curtis will become, that will become the sort of Appalachian Trail of the future. Like the Appalachian Trail in the 70s wasn't such a big thing. In the early 70s, there was only one person who'd walked the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Pacific Crest Trail. And nowadays, there are people who do all three or try to. There's people who've done all three like in a year. So, But in the early days, there weren't very many people, and that's where Alaska is right now. It's the future of through hiking or through wilderness travel is Alaska. And this guy from Australia is an early pioneer of it. And he came up on his third try, and he started near Canada, and he went all the way across the Brooks Range in 30 days, which is amazing. In one month, he went 1,000 miles. Wow. So um, what you asked, what can people do? Well, okay, just like you, people can come up for a 10-day trip and get a taste of Alaska and take the ferry across Prince William Sound and go to Denali National Park and get a backpacking permit and a bear barrel and go in the backcountry and learn how to cross rivers and deal with bears and go to McCarthy and and hang out there and meet people of like mind and maybe do a, a longer trip with a pack raft out of McCarthy, like get together with Kennecott Wilderness Guides and learn how to pack raft. And then on your next trip, you could come up and maybe do a trip that includes a pack raft and, and do one of the classic 100-mile wilderness race routes, you know, like Hope to Homer or Nebesna to McCarthy or, um, you know, Eureka to Talkeetna and just check out the Alaskan wilderness for a week or two and see if you like that. And, and if you can do a week or two trip, then, then come up for a month and, and do um, link together a bunch of those trips. So it's basically like anything else – you have to find out whether you like doing it and then build up a level of experience doing it. It's it's quite difficult. There's very few people who can come up and do, you know, a big epic adventure on their first trip to Alaska. So it really is a matter then of starting with smaller steps and building up the knowledge and the skill and the strength and, and uh, then getting more epic as the years go by. For most of us, yep, there are people who don't need to I mean, there are those special gifted people who are able to to bite off a big chunk and choke it down, but um, those people are few and far between. Well, speaking of ways to get started, um, you mentioned before the show that you actually have a book on pack rafting. Tell us about that. Sure. In Alaska, the real key to doing long wilderness trips, and by long, I mean anything over three or four days and maybe 50 miles. The real key is to get a pack raft. And a pack raft is a, a small, lightweight, inflatable boat. And they usually weigh under about 10 pounds. And the best ones, I feel, are made by Alpaca. But there's other brands. 
and I'm not, you know, I'm not affiliated with Alpaca. You know, they don't pay me. They don't really give me much gear. They don't. They used to give me gear in the early days when I helped them design boats, but not anymore. But they still make the best stuff. And by having a pack raft, a river is no longer an obstacle. It's actually a neat way to travel. But I get tired of being on a river. The views are kind of boring. You're just kind of at the low point looking up. I like to climb mountains and I like to hike over mountain ranges and then float down the other side. So with a pack raft in Alaska, you can walk across a mountain range, over the mountain range, get in a river, float down the river for a day or two, get out of your boat, hike up over a mountain range, hike down the other side, get in a river, float it, and do that day after day. So um, for me, my favorite kinds of wilderness trips are about half walking and half pack rafting, but I don't do it like, you know, a 50-mile walk followed by a 50-mile pack raft. I like to do like a 10-mile walk, a 10-mile pack raft, a 10-mile walk, a 10-mile pack raft, and a 10-mile walk. I like to mix it up. So the name of your book is Pack Rafting! Exclamation mark with a subtitle, an introduction, and how to guide. How can people find your book? You know, it's on Amazon.com. Um, they can also, if they'd like, they can email me at raftpacker. So a raft packer is like somebody who's packing a raft, a raft packer at gmail.com and uh, PayPal me and I, I'll send them a book any place in the world for $25. Very cool. So that was raftpacker at gmail.com? Yep. Was there an A in front of that or just raft? Just raft. Raftpacker at gmail.com. And we'll put that in the show notes so that uh, everyone can find it there. How else can people follow you in your adventures? Well, I was, you know, for a while I was making YouTube videos. You can watch a bunch of pack rafting. They're crude, but they're kind of fun and informative sometimes. Um, YouTube videos under Roman Dial um, for pack rafting because I was, I, I liked making them. I don't do it anymore. Um, make those videos. I also, I also blog occasionally at. It's called the Roaming Dials. R O A M I N G. The Roaming Dials, and and I, I, I think blogging. You know, I, I like to write, but I also feel that a lot of us use the Internet to get information. And if you can post information on the Internet, it's sort of a way of giving back. So I try to post information about places to go in Alaska and ways to get there. And so I try to put useful information there as well. So if someone just Googles the roaming dials, they'll find your blog. They should. Yep. Very cool. Well, Roman, you also are a professor at Alaska Pacific University, and you were telling me before the show that it's uniquely situated for, you know, being in the wilderness. Give us a, a sound bite about that. Yeah, Alaska Pacific University is like the perfect school for an outdoor kid who wants to come to Alaska and get a college education and a good education that they can use in their life later, like quantitative skills, GIS skills, writing skills. It's a small private liberal arts school that also has an outdoor studies program built into it. So they, uh, students can come and, and use the Alaskan wilderness as part of their classroom and then actually get an education that's valuable and useful later on in life. We have a month-long pack rafting class where we, we learn to do day trips with our pack rafts and then overnight trips and then we do a a 10-day expedition across a mountain range. Usually that's about 150 miles long, no trails, 
um, over glaciers and mountains and down rivers and through forests. It's, it's a pretty neat experience for a lot of the students we have. Oh, it sounds wonderful. The, the chance to learn firsthand from the Alaskan wilderness as well as from the college. Yeah. <laughs> That's neat. So, Roman, can you close us out with a funny story about some of your adventures? Uh, yeah. Here's the, this is, I, I guess it's kind of a funny story. I, I, I did an, uh, early on, I did a, uh, one of the wilderness races. It was long. It was about 235 miles and it was across the Alaska range. And my partner and I had, um, brought skis and pack rafts. So 235 miles across the Alaska range. And we'd, we'd hiked up to the mountains and skied across glaciers and rafted down and did it again up another mountain range. It took longer than we expected. And we were sort of running low on food and we were camped up on a glacier on the bare ice and we were sleeping on our pack rafts. They were flipped over inside this floorless tent called a Megamid. And unfortunately, my pack raft was touching the side of the, the shelter and, uh, and it was raining all night and blowing and water ran down the shelter and it filled up my, my raft where I was sleeping with it upside down and, and I woke up in a puddle of cold icy water <laughs> and uh and i i thought this is miserable and i woke up shivering hypothermic and i asked my partner you know hey hey look uh, are you dry and he's like yeah i said look i am in a puddle over here i am cold wet and miserable could i get on the raft with you with you on your raft and he said no i said well why not <laughs> and he said well we'd both be cold wet and miserable <laughs> I sort of shivered and i was kind of irritated that he'd said that. And, and then about two days later, we were laying down in the tundra. We'd hiked off the glaciers and we were laying in the tundra and, and we'd kind of run out of food. It took us longer to go as far as we'd gone than we thought it would. And I pulled out this soggy bag, sock, soggy Ziploc plastic bag with some jerky and peanuts and raisins. And, and my partner goes, Hey, is that, is that food you've got there? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He goes, hey, I, I'm all out. Could I? I'm really hungry. Could I have some of that? And I said, no. Then we'd both be hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that's kind of a funny story. I did share it with him. You know, he goes, oh, I'm really sorry about that. I felt bad for the last couple of days. That, uh, you know, I felt bad for the last couple of days. I didn't let you get on my boat. But yeah, blah blah. And I, I gave. Him. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, Roman. We need to have you on the show again. I think you have so many stories to tell, and we've hardly scratched the surface. Thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, this was fun. It's nice to reminisce about those old stories. Yeah, my pleasure. And for all of our listeners out there, until the next show, make sure you do get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.